Hello, and welcome to another TCOYD podcast. This is a special episode created with the American Diabetes Association for their Focus on Diabetes initiative, which aims to increase awareness of and help reduce, treat, and manage diabetes-related eye diseases. I'm Dr. Steve Edelman. Now, I'm not here today with my co-host, Dr. Jeremy Pettis, but I am here with a very close friend that I've known since 1978, Dr. Bob Miller. We both went to UC Davis Medical School together. I became an endocrinologist and Bob became an ophthalmologist. And today we're going to discuss diabetes and eye health, what happens during a regular visit and important info surrounding taking care of your eyes. Now, Bob has an illustrious career. He spent his whole career seeing people with diabetes in Davis, California. He also has done a ton of humanitarian work helping individuals with severe cataracts in countries that didn't have access to care. He's a professor emeritus, and we've both been in our specialties for a long time. So, Bob, thank you so much for being here. What a pleasure to join you. Thanks for the opportunity. Yeah. Well, okay, let's start. We're going to talk about uh, some of the issues around diabetic eye disease, and then we're going to talk about uh, the screening and what's so important during the screening. So let's talk about the etiology and causes of diabetic eye disease, Bob. So when I see a new patient or uh, even a return patient with diabetes in my office, uh, for me, the really important thing to determine is how involved are they with their care? Because uh, there's so much that we can do to change the course of their disease. People do have some control, but for me, I want to make sure that they really do understand that they do have some control over this. The problem with diabetic eye disease is that it's really just one end organ. Hate to minimize my entire profession to say that the eyeball is just one organ, but I try to explain to patients that what's happening in their eye is happening everywhere in their body. It isn't just that the diabetes is affecting their eyeballs, but what's happening in their eye is also happening in their kidney, in their heart, in their lungs, in their brain, and erection difficulties, and all the things that affect the diabetic's day-to-day life. So, yeah, Bob, I'll just- I, I just want to emphasize that, you know, what we say, uh, at least in the endocrinology world, is that uh, retinopathy uh, parallels kidney disease because it's the same microvasculature. And uh, it, it's rare to have someone with serious eye disease with no kidney disease and vice versa. So, yeah, you're right. The eye, <clears throat> even though it's up here. So if you think, oh, you're just here for an eye exam. No, you're really here for an idea of a feeling for getting a feeling for what's going on with the rest of you. And every part of your body that has blood flow that uses oxygen is affected by the etiology, as you put it, the cause, the mechanism of how diabetes affects us. And it does that by causing poor circulation. Really, uh, diabetes is a disease of circulation. We all tune into the blood sugar level and we'll come back to that because that's what we can control. But We don't know still, with all the years of research that have gone in, how high sugar causes blood flow to shut down. We know that that the capillary flow gets knocked out, but we don't really know how that happens. Well, let's talk about um, some of the risk factors for diabetic eye disease. And uh, 
I think glucose, the duration and severity of hyperglycemia, you know, I, I, in a lay sense, I always talk about uh, causing uh, glucose, causing damage to the microvascular and, you know, it, it binds on to proteins in excess amount and causes damage. Same in the kidneys. But what other risk factors do we have? What do you look at how, so, how long someone has had diabetes and of course their degree of control? We'll come back to that as well of how often a routine eye exam should be done. I have a little bit of a uh, un, perhaps non-traditional view of that, but we'll discuss that in a second. What I mainly tell people is, look, we know what's happening. We know that the longer you have diabetes, the worse the control is, the worse your complications of diabetes are. And I try to make good eye contact and get in close and say, there are three things that you can do that will lower your risk of diabetic complications. Three things. You have control over these. It's your choice. Number one, tight control of blood sugar. And we know that from the BCCT, the Diabetic Complications Control Trial back in the mid-90s, that people who have tight control of blood sugar have a lower risk of complications. It's that simple. Um, number two, and we'll, how you control that's another story, and I'm not the one to manage that. I leave that to you experts, but I want the patient to be involved and invested. Number two, tight control of blood pressure. Clearly, controlling the blood pressure reduces the, all the vascular problems and the damage that's done, which ultimately leads to these complications. What, what level, Bob? When you say tight, what do you mean? Well, <laughs> again... I'd hate to step in and be the person who's going to control someone's blood pressure. That's really not, I hate to say not my job, but I'm not going to be the best one to do it. But, you know, normal blood pressure is 120 over 80, just like with diabetic control. What's normal blood sugar? Where would you like to see it controlled? You and I earlier before the show has talked about time and range. I know you'll go back to that in a moment, but I was surprised that you thought that sugars up to 180 were okay. Uh, yeah, well, so let me... Might as well talk about it now. Well, you know, with blood pressure, you know, 120 over 80 is great. Uh, less than 130 over 85 would be my upper limit. But like everything else, like uh, airline prices and rent-a-car prices, blood pressure bounces around a lot. And I think people with diabetes should have a blood pressure cuff and measure uh, on a on a regular basis and not just relying going into the doctor's office where they have the white coat phenomena. But you okay. mentioned time and range, Bob. You know, I would say this is a concept most ophthalmologists do not know about just because it's mostly in the diabetes world. But time and range is the percent of time that uh, someone's blood sugar is between 70 and 180. Now, Bob, it, it's, it's I, I'm glad you made that comment that you're surprised 180. Well, a consensus conference came out and said, listen, what should the blood sugar be most of the time, including pre-meals and after meals? Uh, and so it is, uh, uh, when you have diabetes, uh, a, a good blood sugar up to 180 after eating is fine. It's acceptable. That's the word I'm looking for. Um, and, you know, we, we try to shoot for less, but this is just a realistic number. And then we have time below range and time above range. And for people with diabetes like myself, you know, the time and range tells you a lot about what's going on with your diabetes with lots of fluctuations. And an A1C, as you know, Bob, is just an average. But the last thing I'll say about time and range is there's been several studies in type 1 and type 2 diabetes that have equated time and range with retinopathy. 
the greater the time that you are between 70 and 180, the less diabetic eye problems and vice versa. If your time and range is low, then you will have more eye problems. And that has been shown in several studies. And now even the FDA is looking at it as a primary outcome and getting away from the good old A1C. Bob, did I explain that uh, correctly to an ophthalmologist? What, do you have any questions? Absolutely. And I always learn something from you. So this is great. Thanks for letting me be here. Um, I do want to go back just briefly before we go back to the time and range. And I want to draw an analogy to hypertension with that. But I was going to say there were three things you could do to control yeah. and help to reduce your chances of going blind from diabetes and have the other complications. So tight control of blood sugar, tight control of blood pressure, yep. and don't smoke cigarettes. Okay, Bob, take us through a routine eye exam. And we don't want to get into the super detailed, but we want people to realize um, how important it is. And I think the first thing you should say is, how often do you have people come in and why is it that a routine eye exam is so important, even if you're not having any eye symptoms? So I, I do say exactly that, that boy, I'm here as an eye doctor, an ophthalmologist, and there are optometrists and ophthalmologists who do eye examinations, but an ophthalmologist is, that's an MD, is uniquely qualified to really recognize issues before they cause symptoms. So why should you come in as a diabetic? Because we can catch things early and we don't have to wait until all of a sudden you've lost vision. So first thing that I do in, a, in an eye examination is talk to our patient, establish some degree of trust, get a history. How long have you had diabetes? What kind of control do you have? What are you actively doing to keep things in good shape? And how again, again how invested are you? Uh, we do the routine eye examination. That is what most patients expect. We check their vision. We do that on an eye chart. How low on this chart can you read little letters and be able to pick them out? And of course, that's a whole discussion as well. And we do that both without glasses and with glasses. Okay. We then check their extraocular movements. Can you move your eyes in all directions? Usually when people with diabetes have a problem with their extraocular movements, they will complain of the symptom of double vision. And a new onset of double vision in somebody who walks into our office at 30 or 40 or 50 years old is diabetes until proven otherwise. It's just such a common thing to happen. Uh, we look at their pupil reaction, how the black part of their eye, the little hole in the colored part, your iris moves. Um, and we look at their eye with a microscope. And that's perhaps that archaic instrument that you talk about. We bring the patient's head up into the microscope and look at things in detail. Uh, we obviously check the pressure in their eye. And most importantly, then, we look at the back of the eye, the fundus, the retina. The center of the retina is the macula. That's your 2020 zone. We often take pictures. We'll often do some tests with uh, uh, sophisticated instruments to look at the thickness of the retina in real time on real people. And it's a fascinating picture. I try to show that to our patients. And occasionally, if we really want to see circulation, we'll even do a test called an angiogram, which isn't like a heart angiogram, but it's just a little injection in an arm vein and shows us all the circulation, most importantly, if we suspect that there's problems. So just to make it clear, a lot of people freak out when they hear die because they have kidney disease. As I understand it, Bob, this is like a, 
a very, it does not affect the kidneys at all. This is a vegetable dye. Fluorescein is a dye that we use all the time. And it's not an iodine containing dye, which you'd inject for doing a cardiac or, or a cerebral angiogram. So it's good for vegetarians as well. So, and vegans. <laughs> <laughs> so, so basically, uh, you know, I appreciate you running through the exams and it probably depends on what kind of previous history eye history that patient has had that you're going to do, you know, this ocular CT, the angiogram, but what you call the microscope, I think they, the doctors call it slit lamp. And how long does all of this take uh, if you're efficient? So when a patient walks in, if my staff has already gotten started with them, taking the preliminary history, the vision, and the patient is dilated, I walk in as a somewhat retinally, a retinal focused exam excuse the pun, um, <laughs> honest to goodness, the examination may take three minutes. So why do we spend so much longer in the room? Or I hope your doctor does. It's the important part of the examination. It's talking with you. It's yeah. finding out what we could do to help. Yeah, and they, Dr. London usually puts my uh, results up on a screen, you know, whatever, the, OC, the ocular CAT scan to see how thick my retina is, things like mm -hmm. that. So let's talk about um, how often should someone with type 1 diabetes uh, have an annual dilated eye exam? We want to see you in the eye exam for an eye exam every year for the rest of your life. And it starts now. And I understand the traditional teaching as well. A type 1 on new diagnosis is going to have diabetic retinopathy for five years. The standard recommendations from diabetes organizations, including the American Diabetes Association, is that uh, people with type 1 should have a dilated eye exam starting five years after the diagnosis. And that is because the diagnosis is pretty clear-cut in people with type 1. They usually have ketoacidosis, and that it does take several years to develop retinopathy and we'll talk about type 2 in a second but I'll tell you what Bob I agree with you why not get a baseline there are other causes of retinopathy including uh, hypertension as you mentioned um, and you as a as an ophthalmologist you might tell someone you don't need to come back for two years so having a baseline right. is important that's right and um, you know so that rule is not set in stone, but we do respect uh, the experts who look at the data and look at uh, how long it takes to develop retinopathy in someone with type 1. And it also depends on the degree of control. We know people, unfortunately, for lots of reasons, have horrible control from the time they're diagnosed and others have better control. So what about type 2, Bob? I, I'd imagine uh, because well, the diagnosis, we don't know when it when they really develop diabetes, we just want to get one right away. Having a good baseline is important. Now, what if I was pregnant? What what suggestion would you make? I'd have a lot of comments about you if you were pregnant. <laughs> Pregnancy presents a certain and a very challenging time for the body. Hormones are rampant. Our circulation shifts a great deal. And it's important for us to recognize that that can exacerbate retinal disease and diabetic eye disease in general. I think it's important to have a newly pregnant person come in to do an eye exam, at least to get a baseline. Obviously, if there is some retinopathy, we're going to follow them closely over the course of the next nine months and year following delivery. But even if they don't have any retinopathy, I still recommend at least one more exam near the end of their pregnancy, sixth, seventh, or eighth month. 
Now, um, I think it's really important, sort of as we get near the end, we've got a couple other topics to talk about, about the importance of a yearly eye exam, because I have so many patients that say, I don't, I don't have any vision problems. So why should I go and see someone every year when I'm doing fine and spend a couple hours in the office? It, you know, it's typically a two hour visit when you go through all the different things you have to do. Um, what would you say to that? And do you give patients any suggestions uh, not to forget? I know your office probably calls them, but it has to come on their side as well. As an ophthalmologist, we're part of their care. We want to see them once a year and be able to find things early before they cause symptoms. Yeah, uh, now, Bob, uh, let me interrupt and ask, can you have retinopathy with no symptom, no visual symptoms at all, or no symptoms, eye very, or otherwise? You're very good at picking up my next sentence. You're so intuitive, Steve. <laughs> and that's exactly the point. We can look in and see changes in the back of the eye that show that the retinopathy is becoming worse or even vision threatening and have the patient having no symptoms whatsoever. And unfortunately, the first symptom of proliferative retinopathy, that is such bad circulation that your body starts to produce new blood vessels, which aren't good ones. They break, they bleed, and they suddenly fill the eye with blood. And so your first symptom may be blindness in one of your eyes. We'd sure like to avoid having that be your first presentation to the eye doctor because yep. then it's much more difficult to treat and it is preventable. And you know, Bob, there's analogies with kidney disease too. As you know, you can have pretty advanced kidney disease and no, no real symptoms. And that's why screening for kidney disease is just as important as screening for eye disease. And so, Bob, I want to just uh, ask you about a, a profession that I heard about recently, and you know about them. We spoke about it before we started. A thing called a low-vision optometrist. So, my eye doctor, Dr. London, down here in San Diego, and you're, you're in Davis, California, um, he said, Steve, you might want to meet with this uh, uh, physician who's a low-vision optometrist. He brought all his equipment to my office. And I said, hey, I could have gone to your office. And he said, well, most of my patients can't drive. And so luckily, I'm not at that stage yet, but he did show me lots of, um, I, I don't want to call them tips and tricks, but technology that helps people who have low vision see much, much better. And I want to make sure we get that on the podcast as well. So there is a specialty called low vision. And it's a specialty within ophthalmology as well as optometry. Just because it's a low vision person doesn't mean it has to be an optometrist, but often low vision practitioners are optometrists because they have the time to be able to spend with patients. We've traditionally done this with macular degeneration patients who have lost their central vision or are losing it. But any condition which causes the vision to be low can benefit from somebody who can help them to learn to use what they have as good as they can. So you just said tips and tricks. And I tell that to patients, look, your best corrected vision is limited to 2070 or 2080, not 2020. How can we get you to use that to your 
best satisfaction? Can we give you magnifying lenses to help you with reading? Can we give you a closed circuit television to magnify your checkbook or a book that you want to read? Why don't you tell me what one thing you want to be able to do that you're having trouble with now? And people can use these new technologies to help you to do that. My mother bless her soul, before she passed away, uh, had very low vision for macular degeneration. And she indeed had a little telescope on a pair of glasses so that she could drop it into place and watch the TV across the room. Of course, her field of vision was constricted. She couldn't have seen you if you were standing next to the TV, but she could watch the television yeah, itself. I've, I've seen those just like some of the vascular surgeons that need to see super Loops. close. Yeah. You know what? I did see those as well, too. So I think it's important. We're going to have an article about uh, a low vision optometrist in our TCYD newsletter. I want to remind everybody that we have two videos in our video vault, one with Dr. London on a routine eye exam, just actually acting through the things that Dr. Miller just spoke about. And then we have a visit where I went when I got an injection in my eye for diabetic macular edema. And for those of you that you know, that might pass out. Don't watch that one. You watch the the, the easy one. And um, Bob, at closing, do you have any closing comments and maybe any resources you'd like to recommend? You are the captain of your team and everyone mirrors you. If you have a team player that isn't doing the job, find another team player. But the more enthusiasm, the more commitment, the more devotion to excellence you have, the better your care will be. So check out this website called tcoid.org. <laughs> and there's this wild man who runs the name, Steve Edelman. You <laughs> will really enjoy this. I think you're the right kind of patient for it. Yeah, Bob, and, and thank you very much. Well, Bob, well, listen, um, it's been a long time since our first day in medical school uh, in, uh, was it September of 1978? And you haven't changed a bit. Yeah, and neither have you. And we've by the way, for all the listeners, we just had our 40-year medical school reunion, and uh, UC Davis does put out some good doctors. So thanks a lot, Bob. Appreciate it very much, and good, good talking with you today. Again, what a privilege. Thanks for letting me be here. And a big thanks to the American Diabetes Association, Focus on Diabetes Initiative. They have a ton of great resources at diabetes.org slash FOD. I want to mention they have a lot of specific recommendations on topics we talked about today, including their official recommendation that people with diabetes who are pregnant visit their eye doctor every trimester of pregnancy. So make sure to take a good look at their resources linked to our show notes. Check our video vault where you can see me go through a routine eye exam and be sure to tune in to our next podcast. So long for now.